ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. It is a truth universally acknowledged that it is always the right time to read, talk, and think about Pride and Prejudice. But why is it this book that we universally acknowledge? Why has Pride and Prejudice lasted for over two centuries as the most famous romance novel of all time? This season of Hot and Bothered, award-winning journalist Lauren Sandler and me, Vanessa Zoltan, are looking closely at Pride and Prejudice, interviewing experts and trying to figure out what this book has taught generations of readers about love. Listen to Hot and Bothered wherever you get your podcasts. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com. Hello, listeners. I'm Amy McKinnon, national security reporter at Foreign Policy, and this is Foreign Policy Playlist. Let us be your guide to the crazy number of podcasts out there, and each week we will recommend one podcast from somewhere around the world. This week, we're featuring Inside China, a podcast from the South China Morning Post, which delves into a whole range of topics, from the country's rapidly developing space industry to Chinese tech, and of course, the subject that none of us can escape right now, the COVID-19 pandemic. What I really like about this podcast is that while China is a hot topic in the news and in foreign policy circles these days, we don't hear as much about what's actually going on in China, which is something that Inside China, as the name would suggest, does really well. They have correspondence in China, which helps to give the podcast that really on-the-ground view. And the episode that we're featuring today really showcases that. It's called China's Feminist Backlash, the Women Who Choose to Challenge Marriage and Motherhood. And it looks at the ongoing fight for single women to be allowed to freeze their eggs and why, despite the lifting of the one-child policy, birth rates are continuing to fall. So that's enough for me. Let's get to it. Here is the episode, China's Feminist Backlash, from the South China Morning Post. You're listening to a podcast from the South China Morning Post. A few months ago, we put out a podcast about Mulan, the legendary Chinese warrior whose story is not just a moneymaker for Disney. Her story is also a cultural benchmark for Chinese women and an icon of female empowerment. I was actually really surprised by just how popular this podcast episode was. We had a huge response from the United States, from Germany and the UK, Australia, as well as here in Hong Kong. But you do know, Moonan is not just the only kick-ass woman in Chinese history, right? There's Wu Zetian, China's only empress, the woman who ruled China for 50 years during the Tang Dynasty. She changed China's approach to education and agriculture, as well as ruthlessly disposing of anyone she suspected of plotting against her. There's also Wang Zhengyi, the mathematician, astronomist, and poet who smashed through gender barriers in the late 1700s and wrote groundbreaking works about trigonomics. And she conducted home experiments about lunar eclipses that are famous to this day. And if you're listening to this podcast on the phone, take a look at the screen and think about Zhou Chunfei, 
the woman who quit her job at a watch factory because she hated the conditions, then went and started a company from her bedroom, which started supplying screens for Nokia and Samsung. And then she designed and manufactured the touchscreen for the first iPhone. But these are stories from the past. Maybe that's for another episode. Today, you are going to hear about the present and maybe the future for women in China. Welcome to another special edition of Inside China podcast. My name is Mimi Lau. This week, the world will celebrate International Women's Day. The theme this year is "Choose to Challenge." And in this episode, you are going to hear how a new generation of women in China are making choices that are challenging Chinese society. This week, my colleagues at the South China Morning Post are filing stories for a special series on the key issues facing women in China and across Asia. You can find that series at scmp.com. But today, we're going to hear from two of our regular guests on this podcast. We're going to head to Shenzhen and then Beijing to find out the kinds of challenges women are facing. First, let's catch up with Phoebe Zhang. Phoebe, you are part of our team filing stories about issues facing women in China and across Asia. Can you share with us what are some of the most interesting things you have learned on the ground? What are people talking about lately? Recently, I've been working on a story about backlash from men against feminists because they see feminists and their continued speaking out about women's rights as pitting women against men and as antagonizing against men. So, how is that backlash exactly happening right now in China? Can you unpack that for us? Sure. I think when you go on the Chinese internet, whenever there are women talking about、uh, women's rights and issues related to women, there are men saying that they're、um, fighting against men and that they're creating a division. One specific example is Yang Li, this female comedian. When she went on TV in December, and then she joked about how men are overly confident, and then how men are overpowering women. She,、uh, there, there was a huge backlash, and men called her、uh, self-centered. And there's even one professor in Beijing University who filmed two. Vlogs about her and called her ugly without makeup. There's been a lot of attacks from men and saying these feminists are trying to divide up society. So Phoebe, can you explain to us how are these Chinese men are threatened by Chinese women and the idea of feminism today? I think they're threatened because the women are speaking up their. The truth about injustice in the, today's society. They're talking about how women are not getting certain jobs because employers. Prefer men, or that they're not getting paid equal payment as compared to the men. And a lot of the men are saying、um, there's already a lot of equality in Chinese society, and then the women are already getting a lot of rights. But in fact, that's not the case. Phoebe, there has been a hot term lately called 女权 Can you explain that to us in English? How has that been a, a, a controversial item lately in Chinese internet? So the Chinese word for feminism is 女权 and the men are playing on the word and make it women's fist, which sound exactly the same. 女权 
but they're using that word to say that the feminists, instead of fighting for women's rights, they are punching against men. They're antagonizing men. They're um, trying to create this division. Now, interestingly, you have also done a story about a particular support group, and it's called the Inspection Squad for Workplace Gender Discrimination. Can you tell us what is that and how do they operate in China today? Yes, they are a group of over seventy women, and they're loosely organized over the internet. They receive reports about companies that discriminate against women in their recruitment ads, and they、um, complain to the local government offices and trying to get the companies to fix the postings or eradicate gender discrimination in job recruitment. So, how are the Chinese gentlemen are responding to the work they are doing? I think they've received a lot of responses from men. Saying there's no discrimination, they just outright didn't deny there's dis- discrimination on the job market. They're saying the companies are choosing men over women because the women couldn't do certain jobs like physical labor, or they're trying to protect the women, you know, from posting them to、uh, difficult or dangerous places. That's that's not true, and the women are protected by labor law against this kind of discrimination. So I think that's the goal the inspection squad is trying to achieve when they complain to the local government, and then they're citing labor laws, and they're trying to get the companies to correct their behavior. So have they have any victories? Have their campaign gained any tractions? They've had some victories, but not as many as they would like. They've received a lot of responses from local government and from the companies who changed their advertisement, but it's really easy for. The companies to change it back. They started in 2014, and over seven years, they've only had two companies out of thousands of companies that they complained fined by the local government. So the squad told me, you know, if there's a fine or some sort of punishment, they would believe the companies wouldn't dare going back to their old ways. But if they were just chided by the government and told to change. Who's going to make sure that they don't change back the next year? The National People's Congress is ongoing in Beijing. Last year, it passed a law that only came into effect on the first day of January this year. Can you tell us about the changes in this divorce law and how that's been affecting women? Yes, starting on January first this year, there's been a new cooling off period that's been added.、Uh, During the divorce process, so now when people are filing for divorce, they have to do it twice. They first apply, and then when the、uh, civil bureau receives their application, they're t- they tell the couple to wait a month in which they can reconsider their decision. And then if any party renounces the decision,、um, they can just cancel the application. And then. If at the end of the month both still want to go on with the divorce, they can apply again, and that's when the real divorce process goes. And that has been an influx of、uh, women rushing to file for divorces right before the law、um, come into effect. Is that true? Yes, exactly. I think the goal for the government to have this law is to prevent people from divorcing, but. They're urging the opposite. There's a lot of women who are filing for divorces last December before this law came into effect.
I understand there are a range of women's rights issues that's been explored along with this year's International Women's Day. But can I get you to talk about some of the issues that are closest to your heart? I've been working on a couple of stories about the rights of single women. I've been working on a couple of stories about the rights of single women in China. Even though I am married, I believe there shouldn't be one conformed family structure. And I believe these women deserve the same rights as married women. Um, so I've been working on a story about how the single women aren't allowed to freeze their eggs in China. That right is only preserved for married couples. So how are these single Chinese women challenging this reality in China? In 2019, an unmarried woman sued a hospital in Beijing after they required her to provide a marriage license before she's able to freeze her eggs. She's still waiting on the final court judgment on that. But um, there's been a lot of media reports, and she had a lot of sharing sessions online. People wrote extensively about her, and there's increased uh, publicity about this issue. Phoebe, um, that was 2019, and we understand she is continuing with her effort in to generate more awareness and debate. Do you think her consistent effort in promoting this agenda in this year's National People's Congress is likely to gain any um, attention? I don't think she will get the attention of MPC members, but they've been writing to the members every year and they've been talking to the media and they're going they're trying to create more influence so that more people get to know this issue. Why is this such an unpopular debate in mainstream Chinese society? I think the lawmakers aren't taking this from the point of view of women's rights. They are trying to prevent surrogacy and black market excelling by this law. So the birthrights of women who are unmarried, that's not really on their agenda. In another word, why are people so apprehensive about single women trying to freeze their eggs? Because traditionally, there's still the view that single women aren't able to raise their children well, that they still need to do it in a traditional married environment. In the past, when they had the one-child policy, children who are born out of wedlock could not get hukou, that's the household administration, and the people are usually fined. But after they scrapped the one-child policy, I think the rules are relaxing a little bit, but local government interpretations are still at odds with the national law. And then uh, single women, unmarried women, are still not able to get equal treatment as everybody else. Phoebe, thank you so much for shedding light on the interesting work China's women's activists been working on. We look forward to read more of your coverage in this area. Thank you, Mimi. Let me give you some background on a very specific challenge for all of China right now. It's been five years since the one-child policy has officially ended, but birth rates are still not going up. In fact, they are going down, way down. In 2019, China reported its lowest birth rate since 1961. And the latest report last month shows the trend is going even lower. Maybe right now you're thinking, China has the biggest population in the world. 
That may be true, but with less and less women having children in China these days, it means the country is rapidly aging. There are some estimates that say China's population will start shrinking as soon as the year of 2027. And what will come next will be a huge drain on the public health system and pension funds as the majority of the population moves into old age. What's going on here? Why didn't the end of that one-child policy create a baby boom? Qin Chen is my colleague in Beijing, and she's been following this issue. Hey, my name is Coleman Hughes, and I'm the host of the podcast Conversations with Coleman. I think that the country is in flames already. We are headed toward the end of the American project. The ability to think and speak freely is what moves society forward, where I have honest, unfiltered conversations about the most pressing issues of our time. Our world is becoming more polarized. Partisan hatred has infected every sphere of life. You can be canceled for having opinions that depart from the consensus of a few social media. Join me every week on Conversations with Coleman as I challenge convention, question everything, and Seek the truth with an open mind. King, you've been covering stories about how Beijing is trying to manage the plunging birth rate in China and the efforts to encourage more Chinese women to give birth. Can you tell us what you have found? What is the latest? So the Chinese government has been worrying about the drop in birth rate for a while. Uh, what they're trying to do is they're trying to give people incentives on paper to draw them to have more kids. They're saying that they will uh, have policies that help young couples to find job easier, to buy or rent homes easier, to help university or college graduates to be able to relocate to bigger cities easier. Um, so they're, they're giving a lot of policy incentives. But we're not seeing them playing out in real life yet. So uh, we'll just have to wait and see if those policy incentives will be real and people will actually be buying into those. After China has been implementing this one-child policy for 30 years in 2016, there's a total shift of direction by relaxing that rigid birth control by allowing Chinese people to have two children Earlier in your coverage, you picked up on a story from Shanxi province where a proposal has been made to match make women. What is he exactly suggesting and how well is this proposal being received? The proposal comes from Guo Xinping, who is a uh, director of a state-owned uh, reproductive Science Institute. Uh, and she is one of the uh, local legislative deputies uh, in the Shanxi province. Um, what she was proposing is that she said the government should create a good matchmaking environment and encourage women aged between 21 to 29 to give birth during this optimal reproductive period. So the phrasing of her suggestion is um, is quite interesting. Um, the first time we saw it, uh, when I asked other women uh, how they feel that, they, they never really liked that phrase, that optimal reproductive period. It feels like inhumane. It feels like uh, women are just reproductive machine. In Guo Xinping's proposal, she called on the government to provide a good matchmaking environment to women in their prime fertility window. So what does that mean anyway? What is a good matching environment mean? 
You know, Mimi, that's a great question.、Um, Guo wasn't really clear about that.、Uh, she was saying the government should do a ton of、uh, good, beneficial policy making to make people more willing to settle down and have have kids and have a family. She listed a ton of. Government benefits, you know, on housing, on education, on providing、uh, preschool childcare,、uh, and and building more preschool care, precare. All of those, I, I think, she meant those will be good matchmaking environment. How are people reacting to that to that kind of proposal? It sounds、um, like a lot of meddling intervening into a person's choice. Absolutely.、Uh, so one of the population experts that I talked to,、uh, whose name was、uh, sorry. So one of the population experts, Liang Zhongtan,、uh, who I talked to, he basically said, you know, the government should just be hands off from making decisions for people's lives, especially on reproductive rights. You know, Chinese government had a huge part、uh, in forcing people to have only one child for thirty years. So Liang think、uh, the government should stop doing that. If China is having a demographic crisis, so be it. You can't force people to have more children, like you have forced people to have less children. It sounds like for the first thirty years you've been forcing people not to give birth, and now when we hit another crisis, now you're trying to force people to give birth. It sounds like people are always forced to do this or that. Reproduction just doesn't work that way. Is that what you're saying? Yeah,、uh, reproduction is human rights essentially, and people should have. Their freedom to choose have children or not to have children, or how many?、Uh, exactly. Yeah. In your story, you also interviewed a really interesting lady. Her name is Zhang Alan. She's a feminist and she's been advocating for single mothers' rights. Can you tell us more about what she does and what you have spoken to her about? Yeah. So Zhang Alan runs a women's rights advocacy group called Advocates for Diverse Family Network.、Um, she's A quite interesting woman. She is a single mother herself, and、um, she does have a partner. But they chose to not get married, but they are still having a kid. And basically, what she does is that she helps other women in China to have their own choices, whether in terms to have family with a man or not with a man,、uh, or with a woman. So、uh, basically, she helps them to get benefits without. Having to present government a marriage license, usually in China, government will ask women to present a marriage license if they want to get maternity benefits, and the organization help people to kind of get around that. They also、uh, give women supporting materials,、uh, you know, emotional support,、uh, and、uh, and other forms of support. Zhang Alan. Talked about how young people are feeling unqualified to have a family. Can you unpack that kind of、um, pressure or ex- social expectation they are facing? Sure. So we're basically talking about a generation of women、uh, that is growing up under the one-child policy. The policy started to implement really strictly from the 1980s. So the women's now we're talking about growing up in that environment. They grew up as the one child, but they're also experienced one of the most miraculous economic ride in recent history. China's economy really grown 
a leaps and bounds in the last 40 years, and they witnessed that. So their expectation for a family, for what they want to provide for their kids, have grown as well. At the same time, China is also getting very unequal. So a lot of young people are having difficulties of getting an affordable housing. The house and a good school zone. Yeah, so in China, uh, if you want to give a child a good future, you want to make sure that you have a good house and it is in a good school zone uh, with great schools. And and those those places aren't cheap, um, especially in the first tier cities like Shanghai or Beijing or Shenzhen. Uh, we're, we're really talking about 500,000 to a million dollar properties. You know, it's, it's a lot to ask for from any young people. They're feeling that they don't really have that to provide for a child. So why have a family? This is really interesting. Can you tell us more about this generation uh, who were born under the one-child policy? Do you think there is a deeper cultural change in this generation's attitudes to marriage? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I have a lot of... uh, women friends who told me that they don't quite feel like they want to have a family because they don't want to deal with uh, the man's family, uh, their in-laws, and and they also feel like they have to sacrifice so much uh, from their job potential to, to raise a family. Also, China has becoming so unaffordable that almost most of the family would want two parents to work at the same time, so double income, in order to give a kid a good education and to live a decent life. So I think young Chinese women these days really find the traditional family setup very unattractive. And that is very, very evident in major cities. In smaller cities um, or in towns or villages or rural China or in rural areas, that tendency is less so. You find people tend to get married and and have children at quite a young age because life in uh, smaller cities and smaller places in China are still somewhat affordable and manageable. But in bigger cities, people just don't find it attractive to have a family. It's more of a, I mean, you, you should probably think about it as, a, as an investment. People see having a family as doing investments and they're not seeing a good return at this moment if they live in major Chinese cities. So the theme of International Women's Day this year is to choose to challenge. Can I get you to circle back just to explain how this generation, in particular, this um, one-child generation we've been talking about, has been challenging Chinese society? Yeah. So again, coming back to this one-child policy, when you have majority of the family only have one child, the family have to treat women sort of as their only hope. They have to invest in them. They have to, you know, give them all the opportunities. So that in turn creates a generation of women who became really economically powerful and educated. They're earning more and they're becoming very independent because they're becoming financially independent. And that in turn gives them a strong yearning of taking back control of their life. You know, marriage is no longer Chinese women's only option to get a better life. Chinese women are now working in all kinds of jobs 
earning a livable wage and having that second thoughts on whether they should be hired into a marriage or sacrifice their own career growth. So all of these things are very powerful awakening. Um, and I think they're affecting Chinese women's choices. Kim, thank you so much for your time. It's been fascinating talking to you. If people want to find out more about your work, where do they read you? They can always read me on SCMP or on Inkstone, but also reach out to me on Twitter. My handle is KimChenCQ. That, that is Q-I-N-C-H-E-N-C-Q. Fabulous. Thank you so much. Look forward to having you back soon. Sounds good. That's all we have for you this week. Happy International Women's Day to you, wherever you are. Don't forget, this week we are running a special series of stories on SEMP.com looking at the challenges facing women across China and Asia. My name is Mimi Lau. Thank you for listening. Bye-bye. And that was the episode, China's Feminist Backlash, the women who choose to challenge marriage and motherhood, from the podcast series Inside China. My thanks to the South China Morning Post for sharing their podcast with us. Go to their website, scmp.com, for more news and podcasts about China today. That's all for Foreign Policy Playlist. If you liked what you heard, please subscribe. And if you want to suggest a great podcast, please email us at podcasts at foreignpolicy.com. This show is hosted by me, Amy McKinnon, and it's produced by Darcy Polder, Rob Sachs, Rosie Julin, and Simone Perez. Our executive producer of podcasts is Dan Efron. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. It is a truth universally acknowledged that it is always the right time to read, talk, and think about Pride and Prejudice. But why is it this book that we universally acknowledge? Why has Pride and Prejudice lasted for over two centuries as the most famous romance novel of all time? This season of Hot and Bothered, award-winning journalist Lauren Sandler and me, Vanessa Zoltan, are looking closely at Pride and Prejudice, interviewing experts and trying to figure out what this book has taught generations of readers about love. Listen to Hot and Bothered wherever you get your podcasts. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com.